We're going to do our reading, which is in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. When did you know? When did you have that sense that this world is messed up? When did you know this is not the way things are supposed to be? Maybe it was something relatively simple and silly, like having a toy stolen by a sibling and broken. Maybe it was a playground bully experience. Maybe it was something far more serious than that. Maybe it was the day dad didn't come home. When did you know? Taniasi Coates wrote a book that came out about a year ago called Between the World and Me. And this book is written as a conversation between him and his 15-year-old son. His 15-year-old son is having the experience of seeing things like Ferguson and some of these other incidents of violence against black bodies. And he's starting to realize this world is sort of stacked against me. And so Taniasi writes this book as a reflection on all that, as a conversation with his son. And he says this about his own moment of awakening to these realities. He says, I remember being amazed that death could so easily rise up from the nothing of a boyish afternoon, billowing up like a fog. I know that West Baltimore, where I lived, that the north side of Philadelphia, where my cousins lived, that the south side of Chicago, where friends of my father lived, comprised a world apart. Somewhere out there beyond the firmament, past the asteroid belt, there were other worlds where children did not regularly fear for their bodies. I knew this because there was a large television resting in my living room. In the evenings, I would sit before this television bearing witness to the dispatches from this other world. There were little white boys with complete collections of football cards. And their only want was a popular girlfriend. Their only worry, poison oak. That other world was suburban and endless, organized around pot roasts, blueberry pies, fireworks, ice cream sundaes, immaculate bathrooms, and small toy trucks that were loosed in wooded backyards with streams and glens. Comparing these dispatches with the facts of my native world, I came to the understanding that my country was a galaxy, and I obsessed over the distance between that other sector of space and my own. 
I knew that my galaxy, where bodies were enslaved by a tenacious gravity, was black, and the other liberated portion of space was not. I knew that some inscrutable energy preserved the breach. And I felt, but did not yet understand, the relation between that other world and me. And I felt in this a cosmic injustice, a profound cruelty, which infused an abiding, irrepressible desire to unshackle my body and achieve the velocity of escape. These are holy words that Taniyasi shares with us. They're words that I, as a white male, feel inadequate to handle. And there are those of us, for sure, who have felt the weight of the brokenness of our world in ways that are far deeper than anything that I have felt, and yet we all feel it. We all feel it. When did you know the cosmic injustice, the profound cruelty of the world, that desire to escape, when did you know? What was that moment like for you? Whatever that moment was, again, we all feel it, right? The world is broken. Things here are not right. And if we're being really honest, we also know that we contribute to it. We all contribute to it. And so the question for us this morning is, how did we get here? How did we get here? So let's pause here for a moment and pray, and then we'll begin answering that question. Father, there's a a definite heaviness about the story that we're entering into, this text in Genesis chapter 3, the introduction of sin and broken relationships to the story, to your good creation. So I pray for us this morning, God, that we would be able to hold that weight, that we'd be able to feel it and own it. And yet at the same time in this text, there's a remarkable sign of hope and amazing hints at the grace that you extend to us. And so may we be able to hold those two things together in tension as we enter this conversation. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, let's get into it now. We're in week four of our season of sabbatical. Our lead pastor, Albert Lee, is on sabbatical for the next couple of months, and we're in the book of Genesis during this time. By the way, if you don't know who I am, my name is Steve, and I'm the associate pastor here. And again, we're in Genesis, and what I want to do to get started here is just review real quick where we've been a little bit. I think it will set us up well for what we're going to talk about today in chapter 3. So, so far, we have seen that God creates the world and he calls it good. He creates a good home to live in relationship with his creation. And at the pinnacle of that creation are human beings, God's icons, his representatives. And what this means is that humans, in a way, bear the image of God. And we've talked about how this image bearing is not so much a look-alike kind of thing as much as it is a mission. It's a calling to work with God to ensure his purposes for creation. And what is his purpose for creation? It is that his creation flourish. Flourishing, according to the dictionary, is to grow or develop in a healthy or vigorous way, especially as a result of a particularly favorable environment. And we've spent quite a bit of time talking about this favorable environment. It's what the Hebrew writers of the Old Testament call shalom. Okay, shalom is 
right relationships in multiple directions. Right relationships between God and humans, between humans and other humans, between human beings and the rest of creation. This multi-dimensional web of right relationships is shalom, the way that God intended the world to be. Two big summary statements from earlier chapters in Genesis. Genesis 1, God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And we've seen that this is partly about his pleasure and what he's created, but it's also about this right ordering. Everything is in its right and proper place, the way that God wants it to be. And then Genesis chapter 2, this is where we were last Sunday. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right relationship, nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. So, so far, these first couple chapters in the book of Genesis have been building this picture, this picture of Shalom, the way that God created the world to be, the way that he wanted it all to work together. And so now we come to chapter 3, and we begin to see that web unravel. So if you have your Bible open, we're actually looking at most of the entire chapter, chapter 3, and we're just going to get right to it. So verse 1, a serpent arrives on the scene. Now, we've talked quite a bit in this series about how the original Genesis audience was Israel, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And they had been freed from slavery in Egypt, 400 years as slaves in a foreign country, a foreign culture. They're now out in the desert, about to enter the land that God had promised to them. And they're wrestling with these really deep human questions. Who are we and what are we doing here? And so Genesis is this origin story reminding them of who they are and why they are here. Now, because they've been in Egypt and because they've been wandering in the desert, they share a worldview with what we now refer to people of the ancient Near East. And we've seen that one of the really big questions in all the different cultures and stories that come out of that particular time and place, one of the big questions is about the fundamental nature of the world. Is the world chaotic and random? Or is it ordered and does it have a purpose? Genesis 1 and 2 is making the case that there is order and purpose to this world. Now, that bit of background is helpful because one of the biggest chaos symbols in the ancient Near East was the snake. Okay, anytime a snake showed up in any story, again, across different cultures and groups of people, when the snake shows up, it's bad news. It is not a good thing. And with it comes chaos and destruction. Now, if you've been around church for a while, and I think for those of us here in the 21st century with the benefit of hindsight in the New Testament, a lot of times we're able to connect or we've heard that the snake, the serpent, is the incarnation of Satan, God's ancient enemy. This is not, though, how Israel would have heard this or how they would have thought of it. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, there's no connection between the serpent in Genesis 3 and Satan. Okay, the snake is always seen as an agent of chaos. We might say it this way, the serpent is an anti-shalom force trying to undo what God has put together. So verse 1, the snake arrives on the scene and this is a sign already of a major problem. This is problem number one. Adam, back in Genesis 2, we saw, was put in the garden to work it and keep it. And that word keep is important because it means to protect. 
So right away, the moment the snake shows up, it is Adam's job to kick it out. Shoo it away. Chop its head off. Whatever you got to do. Get rid of the snake. That's what it means to keep the garden. But he doesn't keep. And in fact, you read on down to verse 6 and you get the impression that he's just been sort of hanging out, watching all this unfold. He's sort of checked out. So Adam's failure to live up to fulfill his role as protector and keeper of the garden is the first problem. And the second problem is the way in which Eve engages the serpent in a conversation. So the serpent opens the conversation with a question. And this question is intended to undermine God's authority and to exploit human freedom. Did God really say? Now remember, God's rightful place in the right ordering of his good creation is at the top of this hierarchy. God people, the rest of creation, all living in right relationship, but in this right order of relationships. And so what the snake is doing here is introducing the question, is that really the best order? This is level three talking to level two about level one. Are you with me? And underneath this question is, you know, our other questions as well. Do you trust his authority? Did God really say, is this the best order? of things and in particular that question the literal question did God really say this is a question that we still struggle with today right did God really say Eve's response reveals two issues two mistakes that she makes so first she defensively tries to protect God no we actually get to eat from lots of trees it's all good he's not mean I don't know why we have this desire to defend God but it's there. And then second, this is really interesting, she turns into a legalist. Verse 3, he did say we can't eat or touch of the tree in the middle of the garden. Now again, let's go back and look at what God actually said. Genesis 2, 17. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, this is God speaking to them, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God never says don't touch the tree. Why does Eve add this? to her response to the serpent. What this does, I think, is it, it lets the serpent know that Eve is ready to give in. She's already kind of pulled in a couple different directions. She's stretching the truth in a couple different ways, and so he goes for it. Verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the question that comes up with this text is that sort of like classic philosophical question, why would God set up this system in the first place? Why even have a tree that's forbidden and off limits and what's that all about? So there are a couple of things that we need to say about this setup, if you will, and even about the conversation. So the first important thing to take note of here is that this conversation between Eve and the serpent is not really about rules. It's not about rules. It is about wisdom. Now, here's the thing. There's this sense in the text that uh, we've been talking about this all the way from Genesis 1 up to this point, that creation is going somewhere. It has a trajectory. It's not a static thing. 
And there's also this sense that this command to not eat of the tree is not a forever and always command. This is my interpretation of it, so take it for whatever it's worth. But I think that Adam and Eve were going to eat from this tree at some point. But it was going to happen at a time when they were ready for it. Adam and Eve did not come out of the box fully formed human beings. Okay, they needed to develop and grow and learn. And so part of living in right relationship with God meant trusting him to give them the wisdom that they needed. This is how it works with kids, right? Early on in the life of a child, their life is all about rules and boundaries, and those rules and boundaries are in place for their protection. We lived in Boston. We lived in a row house on the second and third floor, and I don't even know how this was legal, but the stairs in that house were essentially a ladder. It was like straight up and down, and then they were like taller than normal stairs. I nearly killed myself on those stairs several times. So we had a very simple rule for our kids. Don't go on the stairs. Pretty basic, right? (laughs) Now, this rule wasn't about Amy and I wanting to be dictators or deprive them of some sort of joy in their life. It was for their protection. When they're crawling around on the floor, they are not ready for these stairs. And obviously, we put up things like gates and whatnot, but it was still a rule that we repeated in our house. Now, as kids grow, as they develop, we introduce them to new things, new information, new responsibilities. And hopefully, as they grow and develop, there's an increasing freedom as they grow in wisdom and in their ability to handle these new responsibilities. This is how creation, how human beings were intended to develop. God leading us to deeper relationship and deeper wisdom. And as he does that, expanding the boundaries. So this tree is not a cruel test to see, oh, will they pass or will they fail? It is a tangible expression of their relationship. Tangible expression of the love and trust and freedom at the heart of their relationship. And it is, I think the tree was a literal thing, but I think it's also a metaphor for the question God is asking, do you trust me? Do you trust me to give you what you need? Do you trust me to lead you to wisdom? And so Adam and Eve, they blow it in several ways here in this story. But it's not so much about breaking a rule as much as it is about breaking the relationship. They're saying, we don't trust you. We think we found a shortcut. We think we found a better way to wisdom. And the results of this decision, this breaking of relationship, leads to all kinds of suffering. Look at verse 7. The eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You can see here that shalom is being reversed. Innocence is being lost. They are still naked, but they are now ashamed. And this shame leads to covering. It leads to hiding. It leads to fear. It leads to blaming each other. The web is unraveling. The relationships are breaking. The icons are cracking, and then there's this, what I think is the most tragic moment of the whole scene, where God goes walking in the garden. 
And of course, God knows where they are. God knows what's happened. God knows what's going on here. But that question, where are you? Can you feel it? Can you feel the brokenness and the distance that there now is between them, this distance in their relationship? Where are you? Where are you hiding from me? The relationship is broken. Shalom, we might say, has been vandalized. And so there are some consequences. There are some ramifications to this vandalism. First, for the serpent, verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here, the crafty serpent is brought down a level. Cursed to crawl on his belly, travel on his belly, eat dust all the days of his life. These are symbols of subservience and indignity. Okay, the crafty serpent brought low. Here's the thing, though. They are also symbols of limits. God is limiting evil's influence, chaos's influence. It may not feel that way in our world, but God has put limits on evil. And there's this moment of foreshadowing here, right, where there's this going to be this ongoing struggle between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. And a lot of people will read Jesus into the text here, and I think there's some evidence for that because Jesus will, of course, one day defeat evil in an ultimate way. But again, for the original audience... They didn't know about this. Okay? This was not something that they would have seen in the text. And so at a more basic level, what's going on here is this. Humans will battle evil from here on out. There's going to be this struggle with sin. But evil does not get the last word. Evil bruises the heel, but its head will be crushed. This picture of finality. Then for the women, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So two things here. First, there is increased, multiplied, notice that word, pain and childbirth. Now, this is an important observation about these, what they're often called curses here in Genesis 3. They are not new things. They are amplifications of things that were already present. Sorry, ladies, but childbirth was always going to be painful at some level. But now it's amplified. Now it's multiplied. As we go through this, you'll see again, these are vulnerabilities that these creatures always had. But now they're broken, they're twisted. They are not the way that they were intended to be. Second is this desire for a husband. Now, on the surface of it, that sounds like a good thing, right? Like we probably want wives to desire their husband at some level. But the better way of translating this phrase is this, desire against her husband. And when you take that phrase with the next clause, he will rule over you, you see that now their relationship is broken. There's going to be tension between the man and the woman. There's going to be tension between men and women. We saw last week how their marriage, their union was supposed to make them one flesh. This Hebrew word, ekad, 
one fleshness together, but no longer will that be their default mode. They will have to work for that. They will have to fight for that. And again, this is bigger than marriage. There's an element of marriage here, but it's bigger than that. When they eat the apple, man and woman break relationship with God, but we also see a broken relationship in that second direction, that second dimension between each other. And so from here on out, human beings are going to have a difficult time getting along with one another. We'll see that immediately starting next week in Genesis 4. So we have broken relationship between God, broken relationship between each other. And then finally for the man, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there's a curse on work. Work will be painful, difficult, and frustrating. And this is the final relationship being broken here, right? Between man and the rest of creation. So shalom vandalized now in all three directions. Between God, between each other, between creation and the ultimate consequence of all that the one thing that is different from how things were going to be before is this consequence of death to dust you shall return okay we were always meant to steward creation we were always meant to work with God we were meant to live in deep relationship with each other and we were meant to live in deep relationship with God the creator, and we were meant to live. In the New Testament, though, we read that the wages of sin is death. Now, we need to pause here for a moment and talk a little bit about sin, because I think there's a lot of confusion about what sin is and what it means. Too often we think of sin as simply doing bad things, and there's this list of good things, and there's this list of bad things, and if you do something on the bad list, then you sin. But I think it does a couple of disservices for us. One, it's a very simplistic idea of sin. And it can really move us into a legalistic place where we're kind of measuring how many good and bad things we do. But even more than that, sin is far more sinister than doing something on the naughty list. So here's how I want us to try to understand this. Everybody loves a good two-by-two chart, a little XY axis. Hang with me. But I think this is, again, a helpful model for us understanding all the ways that shalom has been vandalized. So the vertical axis is what we are going to call authority, and the horizontal axis is vulnerability. Authority we can define as the capacity for meaningful action. This is our ability to actually do something, to make an impact on the world. And then vulnerability is our exposure to meaningful risk. Something's on the line. Something's at stake. So starting in that bottom right quadrant where there's a situation of low authority but high vulnerability, we have suffering. Low authority, high vulnerability, we have suffering. Moving to the left, low authority and low risk, withdrawing. Up on the left side, high authority but low risk is exploiting. And then up and to the right, flourishing. Flourishing, real capacity for meaningful action, but also exposure to meaningful risk. 
Okay, before this breach of relationship, God, Adam and Eve, the rest of creation are up and to the right. They're flourishing. There's meaningful action. Humans bearing God's image, naming, protecting, working the creation that God has made. But there's also meaningful risk. God has put himself on the line, has risked the possibility of rejection. Humans are naked, and they have the ability to break these relationships at any time. So for true flourishing to take place, there must be agency, there must be authority, but there also must be space to fail. There must be vulnerability. And so sin is not just rule-breaking, It is anything that moves us away from flourishing. We see this all over this story, okay? The man, Adam, withdraws by not engaging with the serpent. Adam and Eve both withdraw when they try to hide from God. Adam and Eve exploit by blame shifting, by trying to avoid the risk of being responsible or vulnerable for their actions. The serpent tries to make the case that they are suffering. God is withholding something good from you. You have no authority. And of course, their decision leads to all kinds of suffering for themselves and for future generations. All three of these conditions continue to plague us to this very day. We withdraw from the world into fantasy, into video games, into our own heads, into any number of things. We exploit each other. We exploit nature. We exploit the least of these in our societies. And of course, we experience and cause deep suffering. And some of this is individual, individual choices that we have made. Some of it is collective, systemic, societal. But it is all sin if it pulls us down or to the left. We, however, were created for up and to the right. And that, to me, is the great tragedy of the fall. It's running away from flourishing. It's rejecting shalom, and ultimately, it's rejecting God. But look at verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The truly incredible part of this story is that when Adam and Eve turn their back on God, when they reject God, when they vandalize Shalom, God does not walk away. In fact, he goes looking for them. And certainly there are consequences to their actions, there are repercussions to these broken relationships, but God does not leave them alone. And in what I think is one of the greatest Images of grace in all of Scripture, God provides new clothes for Adam and Eve. They had tried to cover themselves with these loincloths they made out of fig leaves. Their covering was inadequate. They couldn't do it for themselves. So God makes them better clothes and then he personally, tenderly clothes them. He covers their nakedness, their shame, their vulnerability. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. This is what we long for. 
to be cared for, to be loved, to be covered. How does God do this for us? He does it by abandoning authority and stepping into ultimate vulnerability. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gives up his authority. God enters suffering, and then God allows himself to move through suffering and withdrawal and exploitation to bring us back to flourishing. This movement from life to death and then back to life releases power for new creation, for re-shaloming, for flourishing. Sin and death have been defeated. And the invitation is to step into that, to accept that, and then not only to accept that, but to Offer that to others, to become an agent of that for others. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess all of the ways that we have contributed to this vandalism of shalom, the breaking, twisting, warping, distorting of your good creation. We've broken relationship with you, with each other, with our role as stewards of your creation. We've made a mess of things. And so we need to say that. We need to own that. We need to confess that. And at the same time, God, immediately after these relationships are broken, you begin to act. You begin to look. You begin to search. You begin to call for us to come back to you. You provide a covering that we could never provide for ourselves. And so we confess and then we accept that grace, that gift of life, the reality that we can become a new creation. And I think there's nothing else but to be grateful for what you've done despite what we have done. So Father, I pray this morning for everyone here that they would know all of this to be true and in particular the truth of Jesus, who gave himself up, who made himself nothing, made himself sin, 
that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have life, that we might have a right relationship with you again. I pray that everyone here would know that and live into that this morning. Amen.